1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. The text we're about to read looks on the surface like it's only for husbands and wives. So what does that mean for me if I'm single? What will this text mean for me if I'm divorced or widowed? What if I have no desire to marry? What if the prospects for marriage would just make me more miserable than staying single would? <laughs> Can I just take a nap while we have the marriage talk? Um, this is what God says at the, at the end of everything regarding marriage in Ephesians 5. This is a profound mystery, talking about marriage. But I'm talking about Christ in the church. Marriage is a reflection of Jesus' relationship with us. Marriage is a picture of the covenantal, sacrificial gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why married or not, single or not, we never have a sermon about marriage alone, but a sermon about a far greater relationship, the redemptive gospel of Jesus Christ. Not only that, 1 Timothy 3.16 says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God, all of us, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Even texts that don't seem like they apply to us, they apply to us. Because part of God equipping us is showing us what things like marriage should look like. So that we have a truth to gauge what we see and to minister others by. No text is for us alone, but for us as God's people to equip us. So for our text, we have to remember the context. If you look at the beginning of chapter 1, just a few pages over, Peter says in chapter 1, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This dispersion, I actually have a map for you. Up in the top right corner, all of the red areas, those are the areas we just mentioned, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This dispersion is what happened when the Christians were kicked out of the Roman Empire, which is everything in the, that is colored that's not like that beige color. Um, that's the Roman Empire, and this was around 60 AD. And so they're fleeing from the Roman Empire into the mountains of modern-day Turkey. But notice, they're still within the empire. Rome was huge. To leave everything um, and to leave with everything that you have and, and everyone that you had in your family, it's tough. But Nero also informed the rest of the empire what was going on. And so everybody who loves Rome, everybody who is a Roman, they're a part of Rome. Well, they too now, they hate the Christians. They're against Rome. They're against my land, my homeland. So Peter writes this letter to these Christians in these mountains to instruct them of what they are now to do in their new suffering. How are they to act as Christians when they have been sinned against unjustly by their government? And now, even their very neighbors are against them. The reason for the whole letter is found in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, which we'll get to by the end of 2020. <clears throat> but it says this, I've written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Despite everything, despite anything, stand firm. No matter how much you suffer unjustly, even if you have nothing going for you, stand firm. So for you and I, living as exiles here on earth, how are we to act? As agents in the redemptive plan of God to show both the glory of God and the salvation of the world through the context of Christian marriage. So with that in mind, let's read our passage. Chapter 3, verse 1. 
Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, they may be won without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and pure conduct. Do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear, but let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands, as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And you are her children if you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel, since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for the grace that you have given to all of us in this room to bring us together, to to encourage each other, to build each other up, and ultimately just to sit under your word, to let you speak over us by your word, Father. And we pray that as you do that, as we read through your word and we we learn some new things about it, God, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to what you have for us. That you would show us that, that we as the bride have Jesus as the perfect groom. God, would you show us exactly what it is you have for us this morning. It's a work that only you can do. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. With the way the text is broken down, the first part of our time together will be focused on the ladies and the second on the men. Ladies, God has given you verses one through six, and guys, God has only given us verse seven. Either either that is a picture of the complexity of women or just that God wants to spend more time on his more prized possessions. Anyway, first for my ladies, in your six verses, we see three commands of God to you. How are you to act as exiles here on earth for the utmost glory of God? The first, be subject to unbelieving husbands. Two, adorn the hidden person. And three, do good and do not fear. One, be subject to unbelieving husbands. Two, adorn the hidden person. And three, do good and do not fear. Look at verse one, and we'll start with point one. Be subject to unbelieving husbands. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. Notice, not all of the husbands in the world, only yours. And you picked him. You picked him. But in all seriousness, the first command we see for the wives is to submit to your own husbands. So first, we have to answer the question, I think, what about abuse? Do I still submit? Absolutely not. An abusive husband is breaking God's law and disobeying Christ. The wife is not insubordinate to ask the church for help or to call the police. In the same way that we are to submit to government officials, if you remember a few weeks back, unless they ask us to sin, in expecting his wife to quietly accept his threats and injuries, an abusive husband is asking her to participate in the breaking of both God's moral law and the state's civil law. Outside of this, ladies, your call is to submit in all other circumstances. No matter how sinful your husband is or can be at times, no matter how dumb he is or can be at times, no matter how much better you could probably lead the family, be subject to your own husbands. This is even a call for the wives who have husbands who are unbelievers. Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands so that even if some do not obey the word, 
This is an unbeliever. And maybe this is your husband. What are you supposed to do? Same as all wives. Be subject to your own husbands. Why? Finish the verse. So that, here is your purpose, even if some do not obey the word, they may be won by nagging over and over and over again. No. Without a word, by the conduct of their wives when they see respectful and pure conduct. Now, God is not forbidding speaking to unsaved husbands about the Lord or sharing scripture if the husband would be receptive, but his point is this that a godly wife's conduct is going to be way more influential than anything she may say. You cannot save your husband. That is still God's work. But this truth frees you up to live in submission to him because there's an aspect to which your unbelieving husband could see your conduct and respectfulness and be won over by it because of your complete submission to God. And remember, this is in the midst of this giant caravan of believers as they're trying to get out of Rome because they were kicked out. And so people are watching. The nations around us, the people of the world may know who you are. They may know that you're a Christian. As the people of Rome knew these exiles, you are God's people. What are they seeing? Be subject to unbelieving husbands. Point two, adorn the hidden person. If you look at verse three, Do not let your adorning, which is an ornament of beauty, do not let your adorning be external. The braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. Now, does this mean that I can't wear an updo and rock some bling? Does it mean that that's wrong? Maybe. It depends on your heart motive as to why. From the text, we see the proper adorning and thus the proper motive. Look at verse 4. But... Let your adorning, this ornament of beauty, be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. There is nothing beautiful about you that will not fade, that will not perish outside of the imperishable inner person of the heart. Let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which in God's sight is very precious. Ladies, why do you do the things that you do? When you do your updo, do you feel like you have to make it so that other people won't say something about your hair? When you decide what to wear, is it for other people? How many times do you check the mirror? When you walk by a group of other women who are looking at you, how do you feel? When you walk by a man who's looking at you, do you feel validated or insecure? The answer to these questions is more important than I think any of us realize because the answer to these questions shows the motive of our hearts. Whose eyes are you attempting to be precious in when you get ready, when you speak, when you act, and are they God's eyes? What is precious to God's eyes? Adorning your inner beauty. What is that? 1 Timothy 2 verse 9 says this. Women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. Again, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but but with what is proper for women who profess godliness, with good works. Why are good works that adorn the inner heart, the inner person of the heart, being precious in God's sight? Why is that precious in God's sight? Because of Jesus. Look back up with me to chapter 1 of 1 Peter 
and verse 17. Chapter 1, verse 17. Conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, that is, sin, that is, everything external, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. You were purchased from this. You were ransomed from this, not with things such as silver or gold. Verse 19, but with the precious blood of Christ. Precious here is the same precious here. You are of worth because of the precious blood of Christ to purchase and redeem you from the punishment of your sins and to cover you with the righteousness of Jesus so that you have nothing but preciousness in God's eyes. This means that in Jesus, you have no need to adorn yourself with any outer beauty in order to be loved. In Jesus, you are loved completely. Why? Think again of, of the nations watching this caravan of Christians. Think about your own life and the people that are watching you. These Christians, they're in a high-stress situation. They have no home. They have a lot going on. They're being treated as worthless human beings. But how beautiful would it be to see a good work coming from one of these worthless people? How precious in God's sight who can see the heart how are you to act as, act as exiles here on earth for the utmost glory of God? Be subject to unbelieving husbands and adorn the hidden person. And then the third one, do good and do not fear. Look at verse five. For this is how the holy, that is saved women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. Sarah is the example here of adorning the inside, the hidden person of the heart. Hebrews 11, 11 says that Sarah considered him faithful who had promised. Do you see it? She considered God faithful. That's the beauty that Sarah had. She was wronged many times, even by her own husband, was essentially lied, her husband lied and said, no, she's my sister, and then the people took her it's a crazy story. Yet she considered God above all faithful. How do you do it specifically? If you keep reading. And you are her children. You do what she does. You, you are following in her footsteps. If you do good and do not fear anything that is frightening. Now, think about her. She's in some frightening situations. She's, her whole family is gone. She's being taken away to go be um, the wife of whoever she's with now, but she's already married. Crazy. But Peter gets this from Proverbs 3.25. Do not be afraid of sudden terror or of the ruin of the wicked when it comes. Not if it comes. Believers are going to suffer, but why are we not to be afraid of it? For the Lord will be your confidence and will keep your foot from being caught. Do not withhold good from those, with whom, uh, from those to whom it is due, which is created beings of God, made in the image of God, and that's it, when it is in your power to do it. The Lord will be your confidence in the midst of everything that may be frightening, and that frees you up to suffer all of it by doing good. How are you to act as exiles here on earth for the utmost glory of God? Be subject to unbelieving husbands. Adorn the hidden person. Do good and do not fear. In all of this, ladies, look to Jesus. 
be subject as Jesus was. Adorn the hidden person as Jesus did. Do good and do not fear as Jesus did. Jesus' perfection of doing all of these perfectly is given to those who believe by faith. And so now, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can do exactly this. Not to be saved or not to be precious, not to be worthy, but because in Jesus you already are. And it is precious in the sight of your king and it is honoring to those who see it and they may bow to the same king because of it. Now for the men, how are we to act as exiles here on earth for the utmost glory of God? Here are our commands from the text. The first is live in an understanding way and the second is show honor. Live in an understanding way and show honor. If you look at verse seven. Likewise, husbands, Live with your wives in an understanding way. This means submit to your wife. Philippians 2 verse 3 says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Count others more significant than yourselves in everything. Every day you live together, you be the one who strives to place yourself in the understanding role. Why? Why? Because the woman is precious in God's sight because of the blood of Jesus that covers her and that's the way that we should look at our woman. That sounds our wife. Why? Because of the blood of Jesus. Do you know your wife's needs? Have you discussed them with her? Have you asked her what kind of husband she wants you to be? Do you care? Ephesians 5 says, Husbands, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. This is the understanding way. Giving yourself up for her. In the culture of these men and women, women were nothing but property most time. And so for the nations around them to see this countercultural, just completely backward, completely upside down thing, like surely they wanted to know more about what was going on. They wanted to know more about this God that they were serving. God is glorified and the people around us, when they see us treat our wives in such a way, they will be intrigued. They have to be. Because man, man's supposed to be manly man who stands on principles. That's what we're supposed to do. At man cave, all that stuff, right? We must check our Bibles before we stand on any principle. How are you to act as exiles here on earth for the utmost glory of God? Live in an understanding way. Second point, show honor. Likewise, husbands, back to verse seven. Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Ladies, two things quickly. This really, this is a text more about you guys than it is about the men, if you can tell. Um, Two things quickly. Paul was pleading with God about a thorn in his side to get it removed, but here's what he said. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. For God to be the one who describes you as the weaker vessel is an honor and a privilege. But secondly, 
Weaker vessel means only weaker in the physical and bodily sense, not emotionally, not intellectually. Oh, that makes so much sense to me. <laughs> and this doesn't so much translate for us any longer because there are some women who could just take me out with one bicep. But in the original context, the woman was just property. She wouldn't get to participate if you know, people were exercising. She, she was just property. This is just in general, women in this context had a, um, the weaker vessel, the weaker body in this sense. For us men, though, what this means for us is by God's design, a wife is to be the special object of our love and care. As a weaker vessel, she is under our authority and our protection. Do you protect your wife? Why? Finish the verse. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life so that your prayers may not be hindered. Do you treat your wife as though you will get to worship with her for eternity? Your prayers may be hindered because of the worth you give your wife. This life is bigger than you and I. It is about the surpassing glory of God and of the eternal sake of those around us. How are we to act as exiles here on earth, traveling around in our land here, live in an understanding way, and show honor? I heard a joke on a movie about a marriage having three rings. The engagement ring, the wedding ring, and the suffer ring. Suffer ring, get it? Late bloomer over there. <laughs> it was funny to see the light bulbs kind of, <laughs> big light bulb over there. <clears throat> um, but I don't think he's off there. I, 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 ult- I honestly think that that's a very good picture because marriage is a picture of the gospel. And the gospel was a costly equation. It's about making each other look more like Jesus, and that will be costly. That will have suffering in it. We will argue, we will fight, and we will misunderstand each other all the time. It's going to happen. 2 Corinthians 4 says this, Though our outer self is wasting away because of all the suffering, because of everything that, that we endure, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. It is costly, but it is weighty in glory forever. Now, what if we fail? What if we are struggling right now through marriage and I'm failing in most of these regards? either as a wife or a husband? What if I've not even been close to this for the past few years? What if right now I'm sitting in secret sin? What if I have extreme guilt and shame over this text and I wish that I had just stayed asleep? 1 John 1, 9 says this. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do you see your groom? If we confess our sins, he is faithful. 
doesn't mention anything about us except for we confess what we did wrong. We confess our sins, and he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, not because of how awesome we are, but because of how amazing Jesus was. We turn from our sins by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit, and we live this way yet again, knowing it's going to be hard. Marriage is a picture of the gospel that's going to be costly. But remember, this light and momentary affliction is just light and momentary. Think about it in the scope of eternity. I don't even know what light and momentary looks like when you look at eternity. The gospel is called the good news because it addresses the most serious problem that you and I have as human beings, and that problem is simply this. God is holy and just, and I'm not. At the end of my life, I will stand before a just and holy God, and I'll be judged. And I'll be judged either on the basis of my own righteousness, which is I have none, or the righteousness of another. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus lived a life of perfect righteousness, of perfect obedience to God, not for his own well-being, but for his people. He has done for me what I couldn't possibly do for myself. He offered himself as a perfect sacrifice to satisfy the justice and the righteousness of God. And now you and I stand in marriage or around marriage or looking at marriage or whatever, and it's with the gospel at stake. Yet we have the power of the gospel. We have the power of this good news to motivate us, to give us strength, to help us submit to each other and love one another as Jesus loved us. It's for the sake of the glory of God and for the sake of those who might see and behold the same glory. Our hope is thankfully not found in us. Our hope is found in Jesus Christ alone and the best news in the world is that he has accomplished everything that we've ever needed to accomplish on our behalf. And the banner that resides over us now is it is finished. The work needed for eternal life is finished. Jesus has done it. And so now we stand. We stand firm in this true grace of God. We're gonna take communion together as a family. And as we do, we do so in remembrance of this gospel. If you have been saved by God's grace through faith in Jesus, you're welcome to the table. However, I would like to ask that you would remain in your seat if you are not yet a believer or if you are in unrepentant sin. If you're in unrepentant sin, you have a gracious Savior who loves you despite all of your unfaithfulness. You have a faithful Savior who loves you despite all of your unfaithfulness. Romans 8 verse 1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Whatever sin you are in right now, repent of it by the power of the Holy Spirit that you have within you. It might be embarrassing, it might be hard, but in Jesus it is not condemning. If you are not a believer, at the judgment seat you will have no righteousness of your own. There are no amount of good deeds that get you into heaven. Romans 6.23 says this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It does not have to be scary at the judgment seat for you. Repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ's life, death, 
burial and resurrection on your behalf to accomplish everything that you needed for eternal life. And believe in him as your only way. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, we admit and confess that we do not live to glorify you or for the sake of others and that we need this body and this blood as our only hope. Would you, by your grace, remind us of this gospel that we may live in complete submission to all. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. So when you're ready, take your time to to pray through whatever it is God has given you. Think about, contemplate, just consider this gospel. And then when you're ready, the elements are at the back of the room. Grab those and bring them back to your seat, and we'll take them together here in a minute. There's not a single one of us in the room that can't just hang their head in shame and guilt over whether being a poor husband, being a poor wife, being a poor follower of Jesus Christ. But let the Father lift up your eyes this morning to show you Jesus. I know that I have a tendency to beat myself up because of it. And yet God says, look at my son. All of the, the benefits, all of the glory that we just mentioned, all of the eternity that we get to spend with our Father in heaven is all because of Jesus. It's all true because on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, He took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That we have something to hope in outside of ourselves, God. We thank you and we we remember, we strive to remember the good news of the gospel, this body and this blood, the body that was broken for us and the blood that that was shed for us so that one day we get to spend eternity with you. That is secured, that is not going anywhere. And so in the meantime, would you continue to sanctify us? Would you continue to to let us be willing to suffer for the sake of your glory? Would you help us, Father, to look more like Jesus this morning? And as we go throughout the rest of the week, would you continue to remind us of the good news of the gospel, that we may not beat ourselves up in shame and that we may not be super prideful at the same time, but we look to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. In all of this, obviously, we have to give you the glory. There is nothing within us, nothing intrinsic, nothing about us that is going to get us to eternity, but yet you saved us. And so to you be the glory, Father. We thank you for the cross. And it's in Jesus' name that we thank you.